do bad Catholics make for good fiction? A little while ago, I found myself alone in the middle of America. I had some free time, and so I did what a lot of people, millions perhaps do, when they find themselves all alone in the middle of America with some free time. I bought a bag of Doritos, and I turned on the television. Going from channel to channel, I found sports, politics, programs that involve people yelling at each other about sports and politics. <laughs> then I found a movie. It caught my attention immediately. The movie was about a middle-aged man leading an ordinary life. He's married with children, has an office job, and he's a practicing Christian. I started watching the movie shortly after it started, so I never figured out exactly what had gone wrong. But it was very clear that something had gone wrong in this man's life, in his family life, his professional life, and his religious life. He was faced with crises on all fronts, and the movie was the playing out of his effort to get right with his family, get right with his work, and get right with God. I was transfixed. At the time, I was working on a novel, original print, that was more or less about these same matters. In my case, it's a novel about a middle-aged Catholic professor of Sri Lankan background, living and working in downtown Toronto, who goes into a crisis when he's diagnosed with prostate cancer. For the purposes of my mother, this is not autobiographical. <laughs> I'll tell you more about that afterwards. He learns his university is going to shut down, also not that autobiographical, unless it opens a satellite campus in the Middle East. And he hears a divine calling to go to the Middle East to open that satellite campus, save the university, help improve the situation of persecuted Christian minorities, and therefore do something meaningful with his faith. He goes on this trip I had against his wife's wishes and in the company of his sexy ex-girlfriend from graduate school. The details of the movie I was watching were obviously different, but the basic interplay of being late for a lecture in the middle of the professor speaking was so... No, I'm just kidding. The details of the movie I was watching were obviously different, but the basic interplay of three kinds of crises of faith, family and work were the same. So as you can imagine, I watched that movie with great interest. But that interest had a particular source that lasted well beyond the two minutes it took me to consume a quarter pound bag of extreme nacho cheese Doritos. Indeed, while washing down those Doritos with a quarter pound bag of M&Ms, I slowly came to realize why that movie was so engrossing. It was so engrossing because it was so, so bad. It was terrible. The acting was wooden, and the deep, deep orange Dorito stains on my fingers felt more natural than the movie's dialogue. Well beyond my creative interest in the premise of the story, I couldn't stop watching the movie because I couldn't believe someone would make something so obvious and earnest. Moments after I started watching, I knew these struggles would end well for the main character and those around him. I could tell his wife would forgive him, his boss would give him another chance, and Jesus would high-five him on his way back to church. The movie's dramas felt pedagogical, moralizing, and flat, not real and searching and supple. There was, as both the source and summit of the movie's animating spirit and intelligence, something pleasant and satisfied and earnest and intentionally innocent about the whole thing. I didn't think about the movie again until, I'd say, a few weeks ago, when I was reading The Hundreds, a new book by Lauren Berlant and Kathleen Stewart. Stewart is a professor of anthropology at the University of Texas, Austin, and Berlant is a scholar, a professor of English at the University of Chicago. They are highly regarded scholars in their fields, and probably best known as leading proponents of something called affect theory. If any of you are lit majors, you may have come across this. In Berlant's form, affect theory focuses on politically tinged evidence of a significant, even catalytic relationship between emotion and experience. 
between experiences of the fraught world around us in which feeling something rather than doing something is the decisive experience itself. Berlant and others devote a great deal of thought to what that fact, feeling rather than doing something, means for how we conceive of the self, individual identity, community, politics, and public life. Now, out of this work, which Berlant has been pursuing in various forms for more than 20 years, she's turned in her latest book to what she and Stuart described as, quote, the concept of the new ordinary. In a series of observational vignettes that make up the book, the authors offer 100-word meditations on the world around them and us. The motivation is timely. In an age where politics, consumerism, and technology, among any number of other pressures, buffet the self and undermine the possibility of meaningful, felt experiences of communion and contact with our world and with each other, Berlant and Stewart invite us to seek feeling through both contemplating their vignettes and by inviting us to create the same ourselves. Doing so isn't easy. Their vignettes are very well-made things and make no pretense of covering the difficulties of the world in any idealized gauze. Instead, the vignettes concern broken lives and failed connections resulting from immediate and historical racism, from various kinds of violence and trauma, from dysfunctional families, economic hardship, and general late American dread. Alongside this matter, Berlant and Stewart write about assorted minor moments of uplift, even transcendence, listening to a small-town orchestra from a lawn chair in the middle of summer, watching children fly around on swings and slides at a playground, sharing a funny and beautiful moment with a stranger on a beach. They write with the most intensity, however, about writing itself, about the relationship between the act of writing about ordinary things and experiencing the ordinary world as meaningful and enchanted, as is evident, for example, in this advice to the reader. Quote, write down all the resonances of the ordinary that the ordinary holds for you. Its senses, practices, accidents, things. Set a timer. Otherwise, you'll never get to any other kind of exercise. Circle one and describe the scene until your language lapses. Elsewhere, they explain, quote, writing throws the world together pulling the writer in tow into contact with a slackening, a brightening, a muffling. Something saturates with physicality and potential. There is a pond and then the occasional water bug skimming its surface. Here Berlant practice, Berlant and Stuart practice what they preach. They make a seamless shift from imperatives and theories about what writing is and what it's supposed to focus on into an evocation of a water bug moving along a pond. They call on us to notice a world saturated with being and then they write it into a state of being noticeable. While here implicitly and elsewhere explicitly, they commend exactly that double experience, looking with a commitment to always writing about the looking, as the best way to experience, quote, the concept of the new ordinary. They can treat this as effectively a self-circumscribed project, because in that context, we can each look and write and protect these linked experiences from small-scale factors like interpersonal breakdowns and from the large-scale impersonal economic, environmental, and political forces impinging upon our agency and dignity. Now, this collection of 100-word vign vignettes is gritty, ironic, deeply learned, and unapologetically mundane. Indeed, out of a baseline presumption that this is all there is, there is an impressive, even courageous decision to find meaning in the here and now by creating and noticing it ourselves through writing and reading, in spite of all the many small and big challenges we encounter. I didn't eat any Doritos or M&Ms while reading the hundreds, 
And yet it left me feeling a lot like that really bad Christian movie I watched in Grand Rapids. Now, to be clear, The Hundreds is exponentially more sophisticated than that bad movie and has a far more developed idea at work in it rather than any heavy-handed evangelizing. But beyond the rhetoric of struggle and provocation, there is something pleasant and satisfied and earnest and intentionally innocent about Berlant and Stewart's project. Just like the hero in that bad Christian movie, Berlant and Stewart are affecting a struggle for something that you can tell they already know they're going to find for themselves because it's really all about their own looking and finding and writing about it. Conceptually and practically, in the hundreds, Berlant and Stewart are fully in control of their lives and their chosen places in the world. Obviously, that's what's found and presented for our consideration. Obviously, what's found and presented for our consideration is starkly different between the hundreds and that movie. But the struggle itself feels flat in both cases. When it comes to the drama of our daily and ultimate existence, good suburban Christians and good secular progressive English professors already have all the answers. And they have found ways, conceptual and practical, to contain in these answers forms of doubt, difficulty, and struggle that will never decisively challenge their basic assumptions. I'd like to propose to you that there is a dangerous satisfaction in all of this, insofar as it presumes and implicitly promises a singular and singularly secure sense of the world as it is, and of our place and role in it. In choosing to begin a novel featuring a Sri Lankan Catholic protagonist with Eight months before he became a suicide bomber, Prin went to the zoo with his family. I have chosen to introduce multiple insecure senses of the world as it is, and of the main character's place and role in it. It's important perhaps to note that the novel was published in Canada in fall 2018, and then was published in the US in May 2019. I'll explain why now. In choosing to discuss this novel today, as we start, as we come near the start of Lent, We're also looking ahead to the first anniversary of horrific attacks by suicide bomber on Catholic churches in Sri Lanka on Easter Sunday, 2019, a few weeks before this novel came out in the US. In other words, it turns out I'm the one with a singularly secure sense of the world as it is, and of my place and role in it as a satirical novelist willing to use humor to say something meaningful, provocative, and unexpected about the role of faith in personal and political life today. I'll confess to you that I've been struggling with this recognition, with the realization that while I've been distinguishing myself in these remarks tonight as implicitly and now explicitly doing something vital and risky by comparison to Christian movie makers and secular progressive academics, my own effort feels suddenly rather self-regarding. The question I'm struggling with, which is one I think we might have to all consider, is not whether, but rather how do real-life events change the meaning of imagined stories? when the space between them is suddenly so close and suddenly so out of the control of the storyteller. To be sure, I remain a religiously serious satirical novelist, and I remain convinced that humor provides a distinct way to say something meaningful and provocative and unexpected. But when something tragic and unexpected happens, how ought we all respond? And what role does any kind of art, especially difficult, and in this case I mean comic art, play in that response? The piece I contributed to LitHub on what it means to laugh in church, which some of you may have seen in advance, reflects a little on this. Beyond that, I could certainly invoke writers and formulations on this topic. Kafka and Beckett's forms of laughter 
in confronting political and philosophical nihilism. Adorno on the antithetical relationship of artistic creativity and human destruction. Susan Sontag and Joan Didion on the ethical aesthetic stakes of regarding the suffering of others. But rather than proffer a series of necessarily imperfect responses and reflections, instead perhaps we can have a conversation about that very question afterwards. Meanwhile, as a help to why I feel the necessary effort uh, that necessarily has to involve both reader and writer, I'd like to say a little more about what my intentions were and remain uh, with my most recent and most intentionally Catholic novel. I can tell you that the original version of Original Prin was, in a way, the literary love child of bad Christian storytelling and good English professor theorizing. It was a 600-page account of self-satisfied struggle, pretending to be the playing out of a crisis of faith, family, and work. When I finished the first draft, I didn't think so, of course. It was only after I gave it to my editor that I discovered as much. He told me there were two problems with my novel. The first was that it was a 200-page comic novel pretending to be a 600-page novel of ideas. The second was that it was a book about religion, not a book about belief. My problem with your book, Randy, he told me, is that it's all smells and bells and opinions about Pope Francis. It's not theologically serious enough. Print has lots of ideas about God, but there's no evidence that he believes in God. My editor's comments, and I want to add that he is an octogenarian atheist, recall comments that Graham Greene made in 1981 in Commonweal, when he identified his own sudden interest in becoming self-consciously a Catholic writer, which happened for him in the late 1930s. Greene says, I think it was under two influences, and the backward and forward sway of my sympathies, that I began to examine more closely the effect of faith on action. Catholicism was no longer primarily symbolic, a ceremony at an altar with the correct canonical number of candles, with the women in my Chelsea congregation wearing their best hats, nor was it a philosophical page in Father Darcy's The Nature of Belief. It was closer now to death in the afternoon. It's through the coming together of his professional life as a writer and his personal life as a Catholic that the distinct and full potentiality of Catholic storytelling came to Graham Greene. That resonates a great deal for me. I think it's not without significance that I wrote a 600-page, opinion-driven, and largely theoretical novel about Catholic life while working as an English professor at an altogether secular university elsewhere in Toronto, and then turned it into the 200-page comic and largely autobiographical Catholic novel that I published while serving as the principal of St. Michael's College, the Catholic college at the University of Toronto. Now, I'd encourage you to reflect on this in the context of your experience as Catholics at Columbia, as Catholics living in the city, as people interested in these questions, regardless of your faith, living in the city and elsewhere. I'd like to say that it was a lot easier to be a Catholic at an exclusively secular university than to be a Catholic at St. Mike's. That's still true. There was very little mutual demanding between my professional life and personal life in an exclusively secular context. Whereas, in a more complexly sacred secular context, there's more natural and necessary mutual demanding, which results in tension that's very good for fiction. Indeed, before coming to St. Michael's, when I was then working on my first avowedly Catholic novel, I was intent, I think, on exploring ideas about religious belief in a bourgeois world, rather than what I've since done, which is explore what happens to a bourgeois religious believer's sense of the world when that is mortally and unexpectedly threatened. Writing fiction as a Catholic in both personal and professional contexts now has revealed the best thing available to me as a writer in my faith tradition. 
the personally and publicly felt cosmic drama of sin and redemption, of intent self-possession struggling with being held and counted by God, of trying and failing and trying again to say and pray and do better, and failing and trying again and again and again. This, my friends, as I'm sure you know, is life as a bad Catholic, and bad Catholics make for good fiction. They make for good fiction for the same reason that St. Augustine's Confessions is the single best first-person search for God ever committed to the page. Because on page one, Augustine offers two decisive oppositional statements. Our heart is unquiet until it rests in you, and anyone who invokes what is still unknown may be making a mistake. A Catholic literary and intellectual sensibility is charged with the force of seeking God and doubting whether God can be found, of longing for the serenity of God's presence and worrying about having the wrong expectation of what that presence is and will be. I was recently reading a sermon by St. John Henry Newman in which he observed that the great challenge to Christian belief is God's decision to die in an entirely public way and then to be resurrected in view of a few friends. Everyone sees only the failure, leaving the few who experience the triumph to tell of it, to account of it for others. The fullness of a meaningful human life, lived and told, is the fullness made possible by accepting the basic and irreducible tension of seeking God and not fully finding God, of seeking presence and not knowing how to find that presence, or, if you find it, knowing how to tell others about it. The works I mentioned earlier have no such tension. They offer examples of seeking things and finding them, of knowing always how to find them, where to find them, with a matching assumption that their audience need only validation in parallel efforts, not challenge. With original print, and independent of how we should conceive of it, tone and action in light of things like the Easter Sunday bombings in Sri Lanka, I was intent on creating the kind of tension I think we all seek in stories, the kind of tension we find also in religious experience. My novel's main character is a husband and father, a professor and believing Catholic, a seeker who doesn't fully find God, but finds enough of God's presence to inspire him to do something unexpected with his life, only for that life to play out in far more unexpected ways than he thought possible. In turn, this leads to him to question his thoughts, his actions, his identity, his faith, while at the same time still seeking answers. Bad Catholics make for good fiction, because what we all seek in fiction is tension, drama, the possibility of real fullness even in its elusiveness, the possibility of real loss in its proximity, the chance to do better and the failure to do so in the ever-warm blood-singing will to try again. That's what I seek as a reader, and that's what I seek to offer as a writer. Of course, whether I do or not isn't up to me, and has much to do with the times in which my efforts are being read. And that speaks to the final challenge that I think a religiously serious writer has today. There was an unintentional flatness and banality to that bad Christian movie, and an intentional flatness and bad banality to Berlant and Stewart's book. A fully religious sensibility by its very nature cannot be flat and banal, but instead has to be open to layer upon layer of meaning and experience, and for Catholics and Catholic writers, the field of reference is fundamentally cosmic and cosmopolitan, local and global, contemporary and historical, personal and professional, and also tragic. Not decisively so in thinking, say, about the permanent truths of the Easter Triduum, but absolutely tragic in thinking about Easter morning in Sri Lanka. Catholic writers trying to make sense of these situations can draw on a 2,000-year-old, ongoing and continuous tradition of expression, inquiry, and practice, questioning and answering that I think, at base, tries to understand the stakes and implications of two statements from the Gospel of John. 
The first is when Pontius Pilate poses the question, what is truth? And then moments later presents the suffering, denigrated Christ to the crowd and declares, here is the man. Whether acknowledged in such terms or otherwise, I think all writers live and write in the space and dimension of human experience that exists between Pontius' Pontius's question and God's answer, or what Jewish philosopher Martin Buber calls the effort to tow the timeless into the harbor of time. Self-evidently, writers of all traditions and in all times and places make a go at this and reveal much. Within this, I think Catholic writers have an especially keen sense of the texture and depth of those spaces and dimensions because of the sheer mass of the Catholic tradition itself that has been made manifest in our tradition's many artistic responses to Pilate's question and God's answer, which include comedy, as Dante scholar John Scott observes. Quote, Christ's death delivers humanity from tragedy and makes comedy possible. What I've attempted with my new novel is to enter this very tradition and claim and be claimed by it in various ways that prevent the flatness of telling, because the tradition has within it a clear and felt and manifold sense of all the possibilities of rising and falling that make up an ordinary sinner's life and of the durable, higher comedy that comes of that rising and falling. These days, and thinking especially of things like attacks on churches, that durability depends on taking a very, very long view. To that end, I will close my remarks. Before doing so, I'd like to point to a writer who wrote durable, higher comedy with the lives of sinners like no one else. Dante knew bad Catholics make for good fiction. Bad Catholics trying and failing to be better and giving up. That's called inferno. Bad Catholics trying to be better and starting to be better. That's called purgatory. Bad Catholics made better. Paradise. Thank you.